Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. How's everyone doing today? Can you hear? Wonderful. Okay, so thank you all for coming out on a hot Friday, or hot Saturday. Um, I'm going to be reading from my novel, I Must Have You. Um, There are just a few things you need to know, probably. Um, The main character, whose point of view we'll hear from, uh, her name is Elliot Eggleston. She's a 14-year-old girl. She's a diet coach at her middle school, um, so she kind of helps other girls lose weight. It's a kind of dicey position that she inhabits because she has an eating disorder. She's pretty anorexic, but um, girls have started asking her for advice, and she's um, an entrepreneur. Um, So she will talk about clients kind of offhandedly. That's what she's referring to. Um, the kind of central tension or loss in the novel is that her best friend Lisa Bright doesn't want to be friends with her anymore. Um, so Elliot is kind of doing everything in her power to win back her best friend. And her, her best friend's sort of fed up with the eating disorder part of life. Um, and she's having sex and you know doing those things 14-year-olds sometimes do. Um, and I guess the only other thing you need to know is that we're about to find Elliot at her crush's house. Um, his name is Ethan, and she has a she has a bag of um, she has a bag of cocaine in her pocket, but she thinks it's heroin. She doesn't know the difference. So this is this is Elliot showing up at Ethan's house. <clears throat> the steps to the Suva's front porch were shoveled down to concrete. I climbed up. There was a stoop, but no walls or awnings or railings to block the wind. I shivered. The cold honed in on the shreds of black denim that revealed my knees. Rodias, said my volition, cake to remember. Your knees were the rods of your legs, held you ramrod straight, but also aided your bends. I worked holes in Senora Lark's mnemonic devices to feel smart, worked holes in my clothes to show off my body's largest organ, skin. Jealousy windows framed the front door, but I couldn't see anything except the broad strokes of my reflection. I was nervous. I pressed the doorbell, it shined yellow when it chimed. I bent down and picked a string in my jeans. I ripped it off, rubbed it between my thumb and index finger until it balled, and set it on the back of my tongue. The string tasted like a dull thought. I couldn't decide if this habit was good or bad, but when I was beyond hungry, I chewed or twisted thread into a knot, like Miss Hyde had done with a cherry stem on late night with David Letterman's stupid human tricks. With a butter knife clamp between his lips, a flamenco dancer con rosa, Ethan opened the door. His flannel was unbuttoned. Underneath, he wore a twilight blue t-shirt with Nirvana and their dead-eyed yellow smiley. The collar was frayed with tiny minus sign shaped slits. He jerked his head and flipped away a few strands of greasy hair. The knife stayed still. Um, hey, I said, what's up? The blade scraped clean between his teeth as he pulled it from his mouth. He smelled like peanut butter. He looked at me with his green eyes. 
every second tripled. Do you like, did you want me to join some chat group on AIM, I said. He squinted and waved the knife in the direction of my chest, like that one old sub, infamous at Park, for jousting a pull-down map of the USSR with a pointer. Yup, exactamundo, he said, online. Oh, well, I was in the neighbor, Mrs. Butter, he said, come on in. He held the door. I stepped onto a mat with an image of a grouper wearing a Santa hat. Inside the tile was printed with muddy brown fractals. On the wall, three bright blue parkas hung by their hoods. The house smelled like mac and cheese. Ethan motioned to a nimbus of street salt surrounding a plastic tray printed with shoe grooves. I recognized his black and white vans. They looked like they'd waded through pond scum. It was weird seeing them without his feet. Can you check off your boots, he said. I nodded, balancing against one red wall. Door slams, brothers, parents, guitars, cartoons, TV, DJs, punks, ringing phones, sportscasters. I heard nothing. We were alone. I'm just finishing up a snack, he said. Then we chill. Tight? Tight, I said. The word sounded like a frog hopping out of my mouth. We walked into the kitchen. There was something frightening about being so close to someone I didn't really know. From the doorframe, I watched Ethan. He stood at an island. It was covered with packages of all the stuff I quote, told my clients to avoid. Corn nuts, fruit roll-ups, fruit by the foot, gushers, Oreos, chips ahoy, Dunkaroos, rolled gold buttery pretzels, Doritos 3D. I could feel my eyes bug. My mom just raided Sam's Club. My bros like their food big and boxy. Ha <laughs> ha. He was spreading peanut butter to the upturned edges of a flour tortilla. He poked the same knife into a jelly jar printed with a cartoon of Roadrunner. The metal clinked glass. He hopped a loogie of grape onto the PB, folded the tortilla in half, and held up the knife like it was another finger. You want a wrap? I rested my palms on the counter. He waved a, he waved a plate printed with balloons under my face. Ah, your snack. I shrugged, trying to act like we were two buds, friends, hanging out. But we were hanging out. There were two of us. Maybe friendship was simply a product of repetition. Hey, I got a whole pack of tortillas here. He mispronounced the word intentionally, in the ironic way smart but cool non-jock boys spoke. tor till us I'm like a couple things of Jeff. Is that vegan, I said? He nodded, shook his hair out of his eyes, and took a bite. I liked watching him chew, the busy way his mouth worked, as if it were fetching out the knot in a kinked-up necklace. I liked him in my jaw and my pelvis and my stomach. I liked his eyes, traffic light green, go, the long lashes fringing them, go, fawn freckles dappling his nose, go, Elliot, collect $200, go. I liked his face, sort of lupine, especially around the chin. I liked how, like me, he had a diet. You sure you don't want a bite? This is one sick PBJ. With my tongue, I poked around my mouth looking for the thread. It was gone. I tried not to ogle the snacks. Ethan's brothers had to be stoners. I touched my coat pocket. Maybe they'd want to buy my mom's drugs if I couldn't figure out how to replace them in the sewing box. You're hungry, dudette, said Ethan. I can tell. I mean, no offense, but you've got that give me some grindage look. 
Alright, yeah, that does seem like a pretty good wrap, I said. Any chance I could get half a tortilla? Yeah, Meg. He opened a drawer and took out a clean knife. I'll split ya. He halved his tortilla and passed me the unbitten part. Thanks, I said. I held the plate under my mouth as I ate. It was an oozy roll-up. Grapey peanut butter dribbled out. I'd forgotten the sweet, cozy rush of a sandwich. It tasted so good I almost fucking cried. I remembered things from when my diet included more than apples and Listerine tabs and lean cuisines. Chocolate ice cream sandwiches with vanilla in between, how the ice cream melted and the cookies stuck to your fingers. I remembered fork and knifing cheese enchiladas, winding up with a greasy, saucy corn tortilla loop. I missed the fullness that followed those meals, a heavy satisfaction like a giant kneeling on your stomach. I chewed methodically, my mandible creaky from disuse. Young to the O, said Ethan. Am I right? Ethan's bedroom smelled like celery and felt like a cellar, even though we were on the second floor. It was dark. The burlap curtains were mostly closed. I could see a squint of the snow-blustering sky. I lumped my puffy coat on the porridge-colored carpeting to cushion my tailbone. Ethan was finessing Kurt Cobain's volume. The only part of the song I knew was about Will being good. My eyes were everywhere, exploring the unknown territory of a boy's bedroom. The wall looked like isometric graph paper I'd seen on my dad's desk. On the bookshelf, Beckett showed up thrice. No exit, waiting for Godot, Malloy, next to other comrades, Nabokov and Burgess and Burroughs. I recognized two shiny hardcovers. Ethan had twice aced about the author, Park's annual writing contest that resulted in the winner's story being bound and displayed in the beanbag bookworm lounge in the library. Third and fourth, fourth grade, I've been so mad at myself for not winning. I was supposed to be good at everything. His bed churned with wrinkly sheets. Was Ethan's will so good he didn't jack off? Was he better than me? I heard the click, hissy click of a lighter and two wide pillar candles on a nightstand sizzled. Ethan slid down the side of his bed. Whoa, this floor's like prison cell hard. His face twitched like he had gotten a mini electric shock. You wanna sit on the bed? The house suddenly felt endless. I was nervous. Um, he stood up and yanked on the sheets, sort of straightening them. He leaned a saggy black pillow against the headboard. Seriously, man, more comfy. I sat down on the bed, knees tented. I covered them with my coat. For an inhale, I was nervous. Lisa and I didn't even hang out this up close. But if I wanted to make a phone call, I needed to get over that. After all, Ethan had chatted me. I was the one brazen enough to show up at his house. And anyhow, he was sitting at the foot of the bed. Distance. Everything was fine enough. I leaned back. The headboard squeaked from the force of my bony back. Your parents don't care about you having a girl in your room, I said. I mean, maybe? He ran over to the CD player, started the song over, and lowered the volume. Then he slid down the bed again. Our feet were an inch from touching. Should they care? Shit, is that like in the manual? Dr. Spock, does he say? Live long and prosper, I said. It was everything I knew about Star Trek. Ethan flashed me the Vulcan V. I'm talking about the guy who died last year, the psychologist or whatnot. Does he say, so to make your kid normal care this much? He held his hands apart. What, would your kids, would your parents care? For a moment, the song was just guitar, applauding, strumming. The room was murky, even with the candles, but I could still see Ethan. His eyes in the dim had become hazel. They were glued on me like we were both under the same covers. It felt good to be watched. 
I don't know, I said. I honestly have no clue. My mom wouldn't care. My dad? Um, well, caring more on the unit's parental agenda? No one's home. No one, I said? Man, they got their 24-7 on lock. Could be mine. My mom's is at market day, cause District 107 kiddos gots to get their French toast sticks. Dad plays money at the Merc. My brothers, they're rolling with Mary Jane and Molly. Dude. Dude? You know, not girls. Drugs. Yeah, gotcha. So they're consumed with their own consumption, like what we can sell or sell to ourselves. We all gotta be better off. 401k Roth IRA payday, comprende? It's that slave to desire she is. They're purchasing their own indentured servitude, nailing in the post and locking up the cuffs. If so facto, they don't care about me, at least not that much, because what can I sell them? A nice retirement? I don't sell. In fact, nard the sales. I'll check out my ad busters from the libraries, thank you very much. Do you know how much the government makes in tax revenue? You hear about all the mail the post office is hoarding? Dude, buy nothing day times 365. So what my family cares? Well, it's not like they've got this place under surveillance. So what I do or don't do, what's it to them? Boys dizzy themselves into these referential games of intellectual twister on the daily, especially gifted boys. And those were the moments when other girls seemed to suck the most. They were intimidated. They were dumb. I remembered my favorite quote from A Clockwork Orange. We'd read it together in the dystopian unit in Headways last semester. But what I do, I do because I like to do. I tried to sound sure, like everything Ethan touted made sense. Like it all boiled down to one slick sentence. Not quite, Alex, my brother. What is lock? My body, my property. I laughed and rolled my eyes. On the ceiling, neon sticky stars constellated Ursa Major and Ursa Minor and Cassiopeia. Nirvana was thrashing, loud. I get that, I said. I don't want other people telling me what to do with my body, how to govern it, I guess. Like, let me maintain it however I want. My parents don't get me on, my parents don't get on me about that. Muy decent of them. <clears throat> I shrugged. So, you chatted me? Mangat, don't even. I sighed. I'm really bad at being smooth in situations like this, so I'm not even going to try. If I show you something, can I use your phone? Ethan laughed. His whole head hinged like the lid of a can. You could have asked to use the phone first. I'm not going to, like, hold you hostage on behalf of Illinois Bell. I took my coat off my knees and felt around for the right pocket. I tossed the baggie into the center of the bed like it was as innocuous as a hacky sack. It landed between Ethan and me. His nostrils flared. You swear you're not some narc? How does that even make sense? Ethan picked up the heroin. He tossed it from one palm to the other, like it was an apricot he was waiting to nosh. I watched the bones in his hand. They were as flat as the laces of his sneakers, but not marker go vega. Where did you get this, he said. My house, I said. More specifically, my mom's closet. That's screwed up. I was surprised to feel like the premonition of a sneeze defensive. Didn't you say your brothers are out doing drugs? Well, yeah. Ethan sat the baggie next to him. He glanced at it. But my brothers are in high school. Your mom is a mom. She's a writer, I said, like me. Those cliches about artists are sometimes true. Like they're starving, he said. I bristled. She's temperamental. Are you sure not just mental? Do you think your brothers want to buy this, I said. Like, squeeze me? Dude, I'm not like a middleman for them. They can wrap their own brains. Do you know what straight edge means? He pushed up the cuff of his flannel. Three X's in his creamy wrist stared at me. 
This time I couldn't help seeing those same X's in the Nirvana logo, those eyes that were all blotto. I know what hypocrite means, Kurt Cobain. Whoa, don't get psycho, okay? I felt my face scrunch into a scowl. I forced myself to breathe. Eating that rat had put me on edge. I was disgusting, the opposite of the song. I had no will. I'm sorry, fuck, I'm acting like an idiot and I have, like, no clue. I should just bounce. It's all good, dude, relax. Slow down, okay, he said. I nodded. So this is H. Well, what else, I said. I mean, I guess lots of stuff. Coke? My mother isn't that boring, thanks, I said. If she's into drugs, she's hardcore. <clears throat> I stood up, ready to leave, Ethan sitting in a skewed lotus position on the bed. I didn't need distractions like this, the generic heteroboringness of my clients. I, didn't, I needed to get home, work on Real Talk, or call Lisa, but nothing was propelling me back into the January cold. Kurt Cobain was singing about wings, then, like, touch yourself or fuck yourself. I looked at the ceiling. Right above Ethan's one thin black pillow was the North Star. I wasn't leaving. I was just standing there. Ethan kicked out a foot and jabbed my torso. His socks, his socks soles were brand new clean. Hey, we're hanging out, relaxing. You want to try? Try what? Ethan picked up the baggie. He unknotted the top. You know what this stuff is supposed to smell like? You taste it? I don't typically go around tasting unmarked substances, I said. I sat down again, but this time I didn't lean back. I sensed the CD case distance between my spine and the pillow. Our bodies were that much closer. I wondered if Ethan could feel it too. Anyhow, don't you need a needle or something? Those like broken loop rubber bands? I think this is the perfect occasion for a sample, said Ethan. He unknotted the baggie and held it under his nose. He closed his eyes and inhaled. What does it smell like, I said. Kinda nothing. I don't know, you tell me, heroin chic. He held out his palm. I scooted into the center of the bed and leaned over. My hair grazed his hand. I extended my nose above the bed. Like medicine? Hold on. I sniffed deeper. This time I tried to find Ethan's skin beside the drug smell. Peanut butter, some whatever hand cream. Putting my face on his hand was 10,000 times more intimate than having anyone's dick down my throat. Stupid Lisa, stupid boyfriend, stupid porn. Yeah, like, have you ever accidentally sucked the coating off an aspirin? Not really a hospital, but a nasal spray, he said. Or vitamins, their aftertaste. Think it's vegan, I said. Dude, very funny. His cheeks dimpled when he smiled. He mimed a chortle. Why you gotta hate? I don't hate, I said, just seeing if you're seriously game. Are you? I opened my mouth and made a show of biting my pinky. I tasted grape jelly. Don't you think there's like trace calories? Isn't that your can of Pringles, he said? Huh? Elliot, Mingat, you know what I mean. He sucked in his cheeks and fluttered his eyes. Gouliat, Kate Moss, lead sister. Lead? Like Karen Carpenter. What? Dude, never mind. I sighed. Consider the towel thrown in. I've already eaten a sandwich. You mean that piddly rap attack? Yes, the Jaimungo rap attack. Heroin calories aren't gonna kill me. I put my pinky in my mouth, pushed it back to a corner. The skin inside me was wet and warm and, then, and smoother than inside my vagina. I stuck my pinky in the baggie. When I pulled it out, it was white capped, like Ligamade Fun Dip. Ethan's eyes were big, green again, spattering on me. I gave him a look that said nudge, nudge. 
then he was sucking his index finger, dipping it too. And we were right there in his bedroom, getting high or stoned or strung out together for facts or science or whatever. E.T., phone home, I said, wiggling my pinky. Nerd, said Ethan. One, two, uno, dos, tres, cinco, cinco, seis, I shouted. Really, he said, offspring? The offspring, I said. It felt good to be right. And, yeah, I know, somewhere Kurt's cringing. I put my pinky in my mouth and closed my eyes. I tasted bitter black coffee like Lisa's dad's sludge, something vinegary, anti-sweet. I swallowed. The taste stayed like a phlegmy cough. I opened my eyes, the room rocked and swayed, and Ethan's head was cocked. Grody on a stick, he said. I nodded. I felt queasy. Can we get messed up from this? He shrugged. I don't know. Dare skip this part. I watched his tongue prodding behind his upper lip. I don't feel anything, do you? My mouth opened, but I couldn't answer. I couldn't tell if my heartbeat was speeding up or slowing down. My eyes closed. When I tried to open them, blackness tarred them shut. For a moment I panicked, and then I let myself go. Time was inflating, the opposite of what adults ascribe to growing up. Nothing was faster, each second was inflating, quadrupling. I saw a field of minutes, a thousand balloons, a wish inside each one. And what I wanted, even with Ethan Suva offering up his Friday evening to me, Platissima, heroin chic, what I wanted was Friday sleepovers under the snow leopard blanket, and morning resisting, mornings resisting the Bright's bagels and playing Ace of Base the sign three years after it was all that and a bag of chips, and talking about life, what life would be like after park, after high school, after college, how our friendship, like our skinniness, would span a lifetime. I wanted nothing but everything with Lisa. Thank you. I'm happy to answer questions if anybody has them. This takes place in the 90s, yeah? It's set in 1999, yeah. And how did you, like, um, what worked for you in the process of writing this to tap into the memories to get into that feeling? Yeah. Without writing just 2020 hindsight, but just, just being there. Yeah, I, I listen to a lot of, there are these people who, um, on YouTube, I think we probably all know these people, they compile playlists of the music from a year. And so I listened to a lot of music from 1998, 1999, and just kind of like tried to find, tried to find the songs that still kind of like, not no pun intended, but hit a vein with me, um, where I still felt some of that like, I was an adolescent in the 90s, so I tried to find some of that angst, not always angst, but like it's sometimes like unbridled joy and optimism too. Um, so I was looking for a lot of that, and then I, I did. I do watch Clueless not infrequently, so it's, it's still a current reference for me. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a really good question. Um. I think that I write about eating disorders in, in fiction and poetry first, and it's only um, it's only in the last few years that I've kind of started writing about them in nonfiction. 
Um, I'm really flattered that you said expert. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's only something that I've really started doing in the last few years, and it was it was it it was a kind of um, way to validate a little bit the the like literary fiction and poetry I thought I was writing, I think I'm writing, um, because people don't always talk about eating disorders seriously in, in art, and that's like a real bone to pick for me. Um, so I kind of felt like it was a little bit of a, a mission of mine because I know a ton of people who have eating disorders, who write about eating disorders in interesting, smart, like totally canny ways, um, and I wanted to kind of engage in that conversation and, and make that conversation in, in non-fiction, non right? I wanted to make that something that more people were thinking about. Um, does that answer your question? Okay. Yeah. Um, I think Hunger by Rob Sandia is one of the most culture-changing books to come out in decades. Mm -hmm. And I'm really focused now on eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And trauma in the body, the body story, the female body story. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems I have with Roxanne Gay's book is that I think every woman faces this, mm -hmm. whether they have an eating disorder or not, mm -hmm. face this pressure. Mm -hmm. And I think the moral contest mm -hmm. over being thin in this society mm -hmm. is so strong that it's almost like you're not a Christian or you're not a good Jew mm -hmm. unless you've got this female body and this female pressure to care for others and you know goes on and on. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what really is bubbling up right now as the trauma on the female body and how the female body becomes a visual icon without a soul or without consciousness of an inner life. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's really profound, and I, mm -hmm. you know, I just, I mean, I'm always thinking of this now that Roxanne Gay wrote that book, and, and I'm glad that you're yeah. coming at it from the other side, actually. Yeah, um, so I, that's a really great question. Um, I think that there's um, something really powerful about talking about bodiedness in general for women, um, and so I feel like Roxanne's book and a lot of a lot of women were writing about bodiedness and the female body as a site of kind of like manifested power or power that could be manifest is we're kind of on a similar spectrum you know I think we're talking we're having the same conversation in a lot of different ways I think um, and uh, one thing I think that's really important for Roxanne's writing is and for mine as well is, you know, the body is part of a larger narrative, right? And so for me, something that I really wanted to represent in my reading about eating disorders is kind of how they're not a person's whole story and how they're not the whole trauma, um, though they kind of take that on. Um, I don't know that they are, I don't know that they're everything, the body, right? The body can't be everything, um, the body, the body is just part of a person's narrative. It's that external piece. Um, and so I think that's an interesting thing is how much for women um, we expect the body to tell all. You know, that the body's thinness or largeness or size is maybe doing more work than we want it to be doing. Like, no one's body neutral. 
I'm going into disability theory a little bit because mm -hmm. I'm really interested in this. And one of the contentions there is the othering. Mm -hmm. And since the first minute you go into a woman's body, you're othering, you're, you're objective. Mm -hmm. And you're, so the minute you start to other her or objectify her, mm -hmm. you decrease her potential as having inner consciousness in her soul. Right? Mm -hmm. your, your foundation of values are being placed. So I'm wondering, coming from your perspective, because I wasn't getting this out of the sense mm -hmm. book, and you know, maybe I have to do it myself, I don't know where the world is. Mm -hmm. But how do we resist, in smart ways, that othering? The othering of the female body? You know, or, you know, for my strategy when I was young, mm -hmm. in the 80s, mm -hmm. was the everything society said you should be. Mm -hmm. That's the way to fight back mm -hmm. and slap them back, because then they can't criticize you. There's no basis to come in critically. But you guys have gone, grown so far beyond that. I don't mm -hmm. think that that's a good resistance, resistance model at all. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I think one way to resist is to and I think a lot of women writers do this. Like I'm thinking about like Lindsay Hunter's new book, or Alyssa Nutting, um, or Jessa Moshvik. People writing about the female body as kind of with some sense of the abject. Um, I think that's important because that is kind of like reclaiming what the body could be. Um, like by othering the female body, sometimes we ignore the more base qualities of it. Um, like to the point where fat seems like a base quality in our cultural fucked upness about this. Um, so I think that's one way. Um, but another way I think that people can kind of, especially with eating disorders, the, the other can kind of be minimized is to just to like to not think of the eating disorder as the sole identity, right? Like um, Elliot is a girl who has anorexia and her mother is a woman who has bulimia but like I don't think of her as just a bulimic or like, those are actually really kind of minor parts of the story they're kind of they're they're no more interesting to me in some ways than like the fact that she has brown eyes and everything through the world is seen through brown eyes um, so it's it's not the whole person um, that's something that's a really nice answer you know and the fact that mother-daughter illness is translated in this culture. I think mm -hmm. those are important ones. I really appreciate your saying the abject because mm -hmm. that would may not be the answer. Because 180 degrees from where my generation was fighting mm -hmm. the object, right? Yeah. Be a man. <laughs> you, know? Mm -hmm. you know. And I really admire the work you guys and all those writers you your neighbor doing. Oh, thank you. Keep that fight. You know? Thank you. Thanks. Any other questions? Yeah. Do you have any teenagers in your life? <laughs> um, not like with a few degrees of separation, yes. Because you're, the, just the dialogue just sounds so conversational. It's just flawless. Oh, thank you. Yeah, really amazing. Thank you. Yeah, no, I don't currently, but um, my best friend, who's been my best friend since I was 12, she's a high school English teacher. And she's a brilliant woman. But I won't say that when we're together, we don't maybe sometimes revert into uh, adolescent speak. Um, so I remember that really. What clearly. did she think of your book? She, I think she read it in a in a blaze of Aww. happiness. Yeah, she really really liked it. So yeah, thank you. Any other questions? Are you telling a story structured through dialogue? 
Um, not necessarily, but I think the story is kind of structured through voice. Um, so it's not necessarily only dialogue, but there are three distinct voices that, that drive the novel, and I think they do a lot of the structure. Yeah. Are you interested in like film form, or is it just you like the literary novel? I'm definitely interested in film form. I'm kind of always interested in the next genre. <laughs> Um, that just seems to be how it works for me. I, I become interested in one genre after the next and then feel like I have things in my back pocket to go back to. It's, it's sort of like literary writers are not as comfortable with dialogue as you see. Mm. Uh, is there anything about dialogue that you feel you can, that's good to tell us? Or, um, dialogue, dialogue tips? Or what yeah. do you feel about dialogue and storytelling? Anyway. Yeah, I feel like dialogue is... Um, really uh like the those it can be the most fun part of writing to me like it's like you get to have a, a, you know like those conversations you would have with a person where you start riffing and you're like engaging in a joke i'm saying it in a way that sounds very unfun but like i'm talking about an experience that's like a fun thing when you're talking when you're having a conversation and it's getting like it's getting some legs i like those moments and film and I like writing those moments too where people get to like get going and like their dialogue reveals their relationship and their character so I think like dialogue is this way to have a lot of fun actually so yeah any tips um I always I always overwrite my dialogue so I have to take dialogue out because I think you want it to hit like a ping pong ball like back and forth fast typically I, I like um but that's that I could I could find that not true tomorrow. So for now, that feels great. Yeah. Um, do you find it difficult like, when you write from first-person narrative perspective, your own voice out of the characters, or, or do you find like, in this book it is a lot of your own voice? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I feel like you're always like putting on a lot of, choose your metaphor, like makeup or hats or um, I guess it's the '90s, so layering a lot of shirts if you're high when you're writing dialogue. Like my voice is probably always somewhere in there for all these characters, and um, the the three women whose perspectives I follow in the book have pretty different voices. Um, like Elliot's mother Anna is a kind of failed poet, so she's like it's like tapping into like Sylvia Plath's last thoughts sometimes. It's like real macabre and and poetic, I guess. Um, so there's always something maybe like about how I see the world that comes through in first person but I think voice is this nice thing we have as writers where it helps us forget ourselves and like be actors for a little while so yeah does that make sense yeah any other questions yeah so are you yeah. So in yeah, I'm like grinning because I I do like adore Elliot. I think she, I did kind of fall in love with her just because she's um, I like her pluck a lot. I was talking to someone the other day for an interview, and we were talking about how she doesn't at first seem like a plucky character because she's she's a little caustic for a 14 year old. Um, but she has a good heart, and you kind—I I kind of like really, really, really liked her transformation over the course of the book. Like, I think she she does change more than any of the other characters, and so I don't know that when I when I finished, 
I didn't know if I was done with her actually just because like she she's an interesting like driven precocious person um, and I thought I could spend more time with her but I also I'm happy to let her exist in 1999 forever that's all right so yeah any other questions yeah how long did it take you to write it um so I wrote the first draft in like four months the first draft was um it was just Elliot's story, and there's really no bigger narrative except, I think the whole story was, she's 14, but she's fascinated with having an orgasm. So that was the whole story, pretty much. Um, and it was not this book at all. And I showed it to my agent, and we talked, and I was like, this isn't really a book. Um, <laughs> and just, like didn't do any, any writing, really, for a whole summer, and then, um, and then I just rewrote it from scratch. I knew I wanted to keep Elliot because I thought if I've created nothing else, I've created an interesting character. Like I knew she was who she was. Um, and I rewrote it and that took about three months. So um, there's a little editing after that. I, I think it's a blessing but more a curse to have written it so quickly because now I expect myself to be able to recreate the process and I don't know that that's really possible but it was nice to have it once. So. How do you write something? Um, do you spend a lot of hours? Or? I, I, do, I will when I was rewriting this. I would spend like eight hours a day writing. Um, or I would, yeah, I would. Um, I drink a lot of espresso. I'm not kidding, I really drink a ton of it. So that, I mean, thing, I think that helps me. But also when I was rewriting it, I was just kind of, um, like unblinkingly focused, you know. So you're like in the novel world, not so much in the in reality. Is that how it is? Or? Um, a little bit. When I was writing this, for sure. Like even when I was driving, to, when I was rewriting this, I would on my commute to work only play like '90s music on my on my you know radio or speaker or whatever. Um, so that even if I had like 15 minutes before I started teaching, I would sit in my car and be like, right, you know, trying to be in the 90s moment, even if I didn't write anything. Like an actress? It was a little method, I guess, yeah, because I was just trying to remember the feeling of it. So um, I, I did feel like I was writing the book all the time. Um, and it felt really nice to change the radio station when it was done. Do the publishers like it getting done so um, you know, they didn't. They hadn't bought it when I when I finished it that quick. So I think my agent was happy, um, and I think he was happy that it came out kind of, kind of in good shape the second time around. Um, but I don't I don't know yet about how my publisher. But I don't know how she's feeling about uh, the next novel and how long it's taking, things like that. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, why, um, why the year 1999, right? Yeah. Anything about that year in particular that uh, made you so look? Yeah. Y2K. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm kind of serious. I remember the dread of that a lot. Um, like the dread that people felt. I definitely had the uncle who had a, a cellar filled with uh, pet food and gas masks for his whole family. Um, and I, looking back on the 90s, I wanted to write about kind of like the end of them, you know, like 
because I, I feel like there was a fundamental shift. Um, even though Y2K wasn't the disaster we thought it was going to be, like things really changed. Um, and so I wanted to kind of catch that last moment. Um, and there are these like whiffs of the way life is a little bit more now, like these characters use like AOL Messenger, which is a kind of chance to be in the text messaging kind of space. But you know, no one really has a cell phone. Like I think, I think the, the boyfriend character in this book, Junior Carlos, I think he's got a pager, you know? So like the, I wanted to, to have those like, that nostalgia at its highest, yeah. Can you tell us if you're writing a historic novel now? Um, it's only a little historic. Okay. A little. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all so much for coming again. It was a really great trip. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.